I ask you to please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. We said to the kids, we're in Acts chapter 10, and, and we'll, we'll, make a, we'll make a start, but we're not going to get all the way through it. But the passage really grows from, from um, Acts 10.1 down to 11.18, but we're going to focus this morning on just on verses um, 1 to 16. But, but keep the context, I'll read all of Acts chapter 10. Acts 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. But the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier, and from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. The thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having, been made, having made inquiry at Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came with an objection. I asked then why you sent for me. 
And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter, and he is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and teaching all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death, hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him as he rose, after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach the, to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins <clears throat> through his name. While Peter was yet saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain with them for many days. This is the word of the Lord. May add its, its eternal truths to our hearts that we will be sanctified, that he be glorified in our midst for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord and heavenly Father, Holy Son of God and, and Holy Spirit, we praise you for this word. Lord, for in this word we find life. Lord, in this word we see promised life not just to Jews but to Gentiles, to people like, like we are gathered here. We praise you for this gift of eternal life through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who quickened our hearts and applied all of Christ's work unto us. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are interceding for us before the throne of God even as we are gathered here together this morning. Holy Spirit, we, we praise you that you also are interceding for us before the throne of God. And so, triune God, we ask that you would do work in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to see the gospel. Lord, help us to see who you are in the gospel. Help us to see who we are in the gospel. And help us to see who each other is in the gospel. We praise this, pray this, all of this, in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Again, I want to ask the question, if you have ever felt like an outsider. Have you ever felt like, like you were on the outside looking in? 
Most, if not all of us, have felt like that at some time or times in our lives. Whether it's at school, at work, in our neighborhood, or even in our families. And of course, it's it's sad when it happens, but there are all kinds of reasons. As I said to the kids, there are even valid reasons why someone would feel like an outsider in those social contexts. But there's one arena where people can feel like outsiders that is frankly incomprehensible. I'm talking about the church. I've seen it. I've experienced it. And I hate to admit it, but I've also participated in it. But when you consider the theological reality, when you consider the spiritual reality, it is, it is an oxymoron that a fellow Christian could be ever considered to be an outsider. Some people feel like outsiders and because they are, are treated as such, because others judge them on the basis of some extra-biblical standard. Others feel like outsiders because they have convinced themselves that others are judging them, not realizing that that in and of itself is actually judgment. But by the only standard of judgment that matters, there are no outsiders in the true church. Now, there are reasons why different local churches assemble because of of various doctrinal distinctives, what we would refer to as as secondary issues, theological issues that, that are important, but they do not define whether or not someone is actually a Christian. Somebody can be a part of another church and, and have an, another theological uh, pr- framework, but, but they can truly be a brother or sister in Christ if they are agreeing with the prime, fundamental aspects of what Christian faith is. And really, the ultimate prime issue involved is, are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? That really is the, the sole standard by which we are Christians or we are not Christians. Now, again, the reality of that might play itself out. Somebody might claim to be a Christian, but, but by their, their life or their doctrine might, might be otherwise or prove themselves to be otherwise. But the only basis for which we can have true fellowship, the only basis for which someone is on the inside or the outside is faith in Jesus Christ. God has judged those who are trusting in Christ as perfectly righteous. He has welcomed them into his heavenly family. There are no outsiders among those who are truly born again followers of Jesus Christ. Any denial of that, either either implied denial or actual denial, is nothing less than a denial of the gospel. It is a denial of the fact that our belonging comes solely through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for our sins and the imputation of his righteousness to our account. And so to view or to treat someone else in the church as less than a beloved brother or sister in Christ is the denial of the regenerating, sealing, and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. This is of paramount importance in the local church because, as I said, it is is in this context, in the local church, where we are gathered together as, as, as as one body in the local church. It is in the local church where, where we have covenanted together to worship God and to serve Him together. 
This is of paramount importance in the local church because it is in this context where the one another commandments, uh, the one another commands are worked out and lived out. However, it's also vitally important in the universal church. Now, I was thinking about this the other night. There, there, there are, are people, there are a few individuals who have wronged me during my Christian walk. And I've had to ask myself whether I truly love them. And I tried to convince myself that, well, I love them, but I don't really like them. But is that, is that really true? I, frankly, I, I believe I was trying to kid myself. I was lying to myself. And I was like, well, I realized I was, I was, I was stuck before the Lord. Exposed. My sin was, my heart sin was exposed. And, and the only thing that I could do was confess my sin to the Lord, ask for his forgiveness. And, and as I was trying to work this out of my heart, trying to, to ask the Lord how, how I can now divid, begin to cultivate a, a different attitude towards these individuals. And it came through the gospel. The same way that, that I experienced forgiveness in Christ is the way that they experienced forgiveness in Christ. And whatever they had done to me, it is not about me ultimately. It's about them and God. And so I could learn to let go of, of the hurts that others had inflicted upon me by appealing to the very gospel that has saved me. And trusting that my brother and sister are truly my brother and sister because of Jesus Christ. And sinners do what sinners do. Sinners sin, and sinners sin against each other. But that doesn't make, their sin does not make them any less a Christian than it makes me any less a Christian. Because i got to say that God really changed my heart through this. It was, it was really, and I might have to go through this process again. I've already gone through it before. I'll, I'm sure I'll have to go through it again. And probably with these very people in mind. But we need to remember that our brothers and sisters are our brothers and sisters in Christ because of Christ's atoning work for us on the cross. You need to be honest with yourself and with the Lord. Is there anyone, any particular Christian, that you can't say categorically that you love any. Maybe it's the person you're thinking of right now. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with the Lord. Is there any Christian that has been in your life, past or present, that you don't truly love? If Jesus repeatedly commanded us to love our enemies, then how would he have us treat our brothers and sisters? Acts 10 gives us very helpful insight into this issue. It helps us to see how to see each other in the church, in both the local church and the universal church, because it helps us to see how God sees us who are in the church. But first we need to understand that, the, before we can begin to really understand Acts chapter 10, we need to understand the, the cultural context of the events that took place in Acts 10. And so we need to step back a little bit and, and ask, what would you feel like 
if you were an outsider because of your race? What would you feel like if you were an outsider because of your race? And, and some of us have, have experienced that. And believe it or not, I've actually experienced that in a, in a different culture. As I was very much an outsider racially in that culture. I would argue there's really only one race, the human race. But I was very culturally different and, and was treated like an outsider until I'd, I'd been there for a little while and then was, was a little bit more accepted in that culture. But the reality is that all of us would have faced racial discrimination in first century, century Israel. All of us. The Jews saw the whole world as us and them, and we would have been the them. The first century AD was characterized by separation and animosity between Jew and Gentile. It was marked by the continuation of millennia of ethnic separation between these two groups of people. And really went back to the time of Moses. This separation was actually intentional. It was actually biblical. Please turn with me for a moment to Leviticus chapter 20. The Lord declares to Moses in Leviticus 20, 26 that he has separated Israel unto himself. He says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. It's the Lord who has separated the, the Jews from the Gentiles. And it was in this context that the Lord laid down the cleanliness laws, particularly regarding clean and unclean foods. He explained in verses 22 to 24 that, that Israel would inherit the land that had vomited out the Gentiles because of their pagan practices. And so Moses here, the Lord through Moses is warning the people that Israel must not walk in their customs. They must not do what the Gentiles do. And then verse 25, that they should therefore separate the clean beasts from the unclean, the clean bird from the unclean, and so on. And so the cleanliness laws, particularly the, the cleanliness food laws, served to keep Israel set apart unto God. When they came into the land of Canaan, they'd be surrounded by the, by the Gentile nations that they're in the process of casting out. And so God wanted to put a, a, a practical barrier between, between his people and between the pagan Gentiles. And so God had given laws to mark Israel to dis, as distinct from the Gentiles, including circumcision, the Sabbath, Sabbath laws, and cleanliness laws. And these symbolized, again, the difference between Jew and Gentile. The cleanliness laws in particular had an additional practical effect which would keep Israel from mixing with the Gentiles. Because Gentiles ate these foods that Jews were not allowed to eat. So having specific food laws that were off-limits for, off for Jews would prevent them from spending time in fellowship with the Gentiles. The Jews would not even eat in the presence of Gentiles. And this served to protect the Jews from the pagan practices of the Gentiles. And so there was to be distinction, not specifically because of race, but because of religion. Because of religion. The specific foods that are listed as unclean in Deuteronomy 14 and Leviticus 11 
For example, the animals that, that have a cloven hoof, that chew the cud, are clean. So a cow is clean, but a rabbit isn't. However, those that chew the cud but do not have cloven hooves are unclean. That's a rabbit. So rabbits chew the cud, but they don't have cloven hooves. Pigs, which have cloven hooves, but do not chew the cud, were also considered unclean. Any sea creature that does not have scales or fins was unclean. And so bacon-wrapped scallops were off the menu. I don't really like bacon. I like bacon. I just can keep the scallops. Categories of, of clean and unclean animals, uh, of land and sea and, and air and insects are delineated. It's, it's a very detailed list, uh, so I think you get the picture. There are several places, though, in the Old Testament that showed that Israel was not to be completely cut off from the Gentiles. They're actually to be a light to the Gentiles. Notably, the Lord promised Abraham in Genesis 12:3, you and in you all the families of the earth should be blessed. He promised Israel that she would be a light for the nations in Isaiah 42:6. However, the Jews began to show disdain for the Gentiles. There was an inherent racism. And the many times that Israel was attacked by her Gentile neighbors throughout her history fueled the flames of this separation, this animosity. But then in 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey defeated Jerusalem and sent in Roman legions to occupy the nation, heavenly taxing the people. And this was the world into which the incarnate Christ came. Gentiles were very much on the outside, separated from Israel and separated from Judaism, and the vast majority of them would have been perfectly fine with that. In Ephesians 2, 11 to 12, that, that Adam read for us earlier, really sums it up. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But all that separation was about to change. Acts 10 informs us of an extremely important event. Luke shows us how important it is by repeating key events. Cornelius' vision that we're going to read about is repeated four times between the beginning of chapter 10 and the middle of chapter 11. Peter's vision twice. And as we saw last week, Luke in his, in his skillful and inspired narration was, was building to the point with the, the double miracles that the Lord performed through the hands of Peter in the healing of Aeneas from paralysis and raising Tabitha from the dead. So Luke was building the, the anticipation of something big is about to happen. He was affirming Peter's apostolic credentials. And now the Lord is about to do something through Peter that will be to his Jewish companions and to Peter himself even more astonishing and a lot more distasteful. The Lord is going to save Gentiles is going to fill them with the Holy Spirit. And so this passage is, is certainly a turning point in the book of Acts. R.C. Sproul says that, that Acts 10 is one of, if not the most important chapters in the entire book of Acts. And when you, you read it, in, in light of, of Luke's 
purpose statement in, of, his, of his Luke-Acts duology. That duology, that is actually a real word, word like trilogy is three books, duology is two books. They go together. Luke wrote his gospel account to Theophilus, the prominent Gentile, to relay the events that took place or in the life, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wrote it so that Theophilus could have certainty concerning the things he was taught, Luke 1, 4. He wrote Acts, the companion piece, to show Theophilus the ascension and exaltation of Jesus Christ and his continuing mission to build the church, first through the hands of the apostles, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ would then continue to build his church through the church in the same power of the Holy Spirit. So this, then this event, this conversion of the prominent Gentile Cornelius would have been particular, a particular interest to the prominent Gentile Theophilus. As Gentiles are welcomed into the church. It's also a particular interest to us as Gentiles who have been welcomed into the church. As Ben Witherington explains, it fulfills the purpose of Luke's historical writing to show how people like Theophilus had and should come to be involved in a religious phenomenon that began as a Jewish messianic movement. Brothers and sisters, it shows how we have become involved in something that began as a Jewish messianic movement. Because of what happens in Acts chapter 10, we see that people from every tribe and tongue and nation are welcomed into the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is drawing a people to himself. Again from Ben Witherington, it is of enormous importance to Luke to stress that the impetus to move in a Gentile direction comes directly from God as is indicated by his visions and messengers, divine and human, were employed to confront, convict, convince, and even convert the likes of Saul and Cornelius. So again, the role of the Holy Spirit in this passage figures prominently. Dennis Johnson, similarly to R.C. Sproul, calls Acts chapter 10 one of the, uh, one of the three main watershed moments in Acts. He says that this, along with Pentecost and the conversion of Saul, are, are the three main turning points in the book of Acts. This is the final one. Acts has been following along the lines of, of Jesus' commission to the apostles in Acts chapter 1-8, that there would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And now this final phase of the mission this, this uttermost parts of the earth phase of the witness of Christ is about to kick into high gear. In fact, much of the rest of Acts is going to be focused and dominated by the ministry to the Gentiles. Okay, so then with this context laid, let's dive into the chapter. And the, the action does move relatively quickly as we follow the narrative, but there, there are six key scenes in Acts chapter 10. And again, we look at the first, we'll look at the first two. Um, this morning, Cornelius's vision in Acts 10, 1 to 8, and Peter's vision in Acts 10, 9 to 16. And then we'll move into next week, and, the, and I think the week following, Peter's meeting with the messengers in Acts 10, 17 to 23, to 23a, and Peter's conversation with Cornelius in Acts 10, 23b to 33. And then Peter's sermon in 
uh, Acts 10, 34 to 43, Cornelius' conversion in verses 44 to 48, and then in Acts 11, 1 to 18, which really goes to this passage, we see the church's hesitation. Really is a reflection, a recapitulation uh, of what's of what's happened previously. And again, this repetition really serves to, to reinforce the importance of what is taking place here. So first of all, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 10, Cornelius' vision. Acts chapter 9 has finished with Peter in Joppa at the house of the Jewish tanner named Simon. And now the scene cuts away to Caesarea, the maritime port about 50 kilometers away with a Gentile named Cornelius. Now remember, Luke had just mentioned Caesarea back in 930 as the departure point of Saul when he went back to Tarsus, where he'd remain for the next seven or eight years. And we'll pick up with Saul again in chapter 11. But it's worth noting that also at the end of Acts, that Paul will depart from Caesarea to bring the gospel directly to Rome from the same port. It's going to be his fourth missionary journey, but he will go on that journey as a prisoner. Now, Caesarea was a strategic military port for the Romans, and and so there was was a large Roman garrison in the city. It was the headquarters of the Roman governor of Judea. The position was filled by Pontius Pilate at the end of Jesus' life, and later in Acts, we'll see that it will be Felix and then Festus. And Cornelius, we are told, was a centurion, an officer over a company of around 100 Roman legionnaires, a similar rank to a captain in our army. His division is identified as the Italian cohort. So this would have been a cohort was made up of about 600 men. So there would have been uh, six centurions over the cohort, and these were men who were from Italy. This was probably an auxiliary unit, not part of the regular army. Luke pronounces or presents Cornelius rather as a prestigious person with power and authority. Again, and, and this is very pertinent when you consider the fact that Luke is writing his gospel account to the man he refers to as most excellent Theophilus, another prestigious person with power and authority. And so Luke here is presenting this Roman centurion in a positive light. And, and really, as, as we previously have walked through Luke's gospel account, we see that this is really nothing new. Remember the centurion in Luke 7, whose servant was raised from the dead by Jesus, and who was, was told, they were told had funded the building of the synagogue, and he was said to love Israel. But more importantly, Jesus in that passage commends the centurion's faith, even above all of the rest of Israel. Also, we have the faith of the centurion in Luke 23, who who at Jesus' crucifixion declared Jesus innocent. So in the same vein, Luke here describes Cornelius as a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So Cornelius is presented as a God-fearer, a, a pious man who aligned himself with Judaism and his devotion and his prayer and his charity. But he had, not, he had not yet become a Jewish proselyte. He respected the Jewish ethics and ideals in, in Judaism, but he had not submitted himself comprehensively to Jewish legal observance especially circumcision. So as such, he was still a Gentile and would have been regarded as a Gentile, as an outsider by the Jews. 
Nevertheless, Luke presents him as being on the right track, as one who has rejected Roman paganism and is seeking the one true God. Perhaps we could refer to Cornelius as a seeker, one who we can biblically define as one in whom the Holy Spirit is at work, drawing him towards faith in Jesus Christ. At about the ninth hour of the day, at a time when Jews all over Judea were praying, God answered the prayer of Cornelius. Let this be an encouragement to you in the practice of prayer. Do you want to know God better? Do you want to serve him more faithfully? Seek him in prayer. The sovereign God is listening. He will answer you in his time and his way, but he will answer you. And in the case of Cornelius, he answered immediately, sending an angel who called him by name and relayed this message. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who's called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon at Tanner, whose house is by the sea. So in fact, God is saying here, I see your desire to seek me. In fact, the reality is God has planted that desire in him. I see your desire to seek me. I know you. I am seeking you. Cornelius does not yet have faith in Jesus Christ. He has not yet heard the gospel, but the Lord is about to send him to Peter, who will preach the gospel to him. So Cornelius immediately obeyed, calling two of his servants, and then one of his, his devoted soldiers, relaying the Lord's message from the angel, and then sending them to Joppa to get Peter. This is roughly a 50-kilometer journey. It would take about a day on foot. So that's Cornelius' vision. Now let's look at Peter's vision in verses 10, 9 to 16. So meanwhile, back in Joppa, Peter was still at the house of Simon the Tanner. And the next day, at the very moment when these men sent by Cornelius were approaching the city, Peter had gone up on the rooftop to pray. Now most houses in that region would have a flat roof with an external staircase that would lead up to the roof, and there would have been an awning under which they could they could sit to be protected from the heat of the day. It was the sixth hour, it was noon, and Peter was getting hungry. And while lunch was being prepared, he fell into a trance. You know, I, I daydream about food sometimes as well, but but this isn't that. This refers to a, a different consciousness where God communicated directly with someone. Now, there are a few times in Scripture where we see that this takes place, but, but this is certainly not normative. Okay, we shouldn't expect this sort of thing to happen in our day. Peter receives a vision to match that of Cornelius. It's really similar to the double vision of Ananias and Saul, remember back in Acts 9. Ananias had received a vision to go to Saul, while Saul received a vision that Ananias was going to come to him. And so like that time, this, this double vision also highlights the fact that this encounter and its effects and its implications are being directed by the sovereign God. So Peter, in his trance, saw the heavens opened and something like a large sheet descending with it, by its four corners to the ground, and in it were all kinds of animals, reptiles and birds, and a voice told him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. 
Evidently, many unclean animals were there on this, this sheet. So Peter's Jewish sensitivities recoiled at the very thought. You know, you or, or I might recoil at the thought of, of eating a dog, but, but this revulsion was far more ingrained in Peter's consciousness. Peter responded in horror, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And so Peter absolutely refused, respectfully, but emphatically declining. And this is really a, another, another parallel with the double vision of Ananias and Saul. Remember what was Ananias' response when the Lord told him to go to Paul? He recoiled at it and he said, no, Lord. But again, the, the words, no, Lord, are an oxymoron. They don't go together. To call the Lord, Lord, means you are submitting to him in all things. Peter is once again revealing his impetuous character. But the voice spoke again, this time saying, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now clean means something that is probably refers to something that is, is unclean in and of itself. And then common probably means something that has become unclean through coming to contact with something that is unclean. Peter, has, or Peter doesn't realize that, that God has already called all foods clean. Turn with me, please, in your Bible to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Responding to the, the Jewish Phariseeism, the, the Pharisees' man-made additions to the Mosaic law regarding the washing of hands and dishes and cooking utensils and so on, Jesus explained here in, in uh, Mark chapter 7, uh, in, down in verse 19. It's around in 9, that's why it's not there. That what, is, what defiles you does not come from outside of you, it comes from inside. That your defilement does not come from things you touch, but from what is in your heart. So in verse 19, Luke adds the inspired editorial comment. Thus he declared all foods clean. The ceremonial cleanliness laws were abrogated. They have been repealed by God himself. And Jesus would soon abrogate the ceremonial laws uh, of the, the sacrificial system by dying on the cross. They had fulfilled their purpose in pointing to the spiritual reality of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for our sins. Similarly, the, the ceremonial cleanliness laws were no longer required. They'd served their purpose in pointing to and fostering the separation between Jew and Gentile that would protect the Jews from ungodly Gentile influence. But the reality is that this, this vision is not primarily about food. It's about people. It's about people. God was revealing to Peter that he had removed the practical and spiritual barrier that separated Jew and Gentile. He was saying that Gentiles can and must be accepted through the gospel. They could now fellowship together without anything standing in their way. The new era had dawned. The New Testament, the New Covenant, 
had arrived. But Peter missed that fact, and he missed the global implications. Peter was misguidedly disobeying God in an attempt to obey God. Three times the sheet was lowered, and then finally it was taken back up to heaven. Again, the repetition is there for emphasis. The Lord was being persistent and patient, but still Peter didn't get it. Now, interestingly, as you think about about where this takes place, this is Joppa. And what else do you remember that took place in Joppa in the scriptures of the Old Testament? Joppa also figured prominently in the career of another hesitant missionary to the Gentiles. It was in Joppa where Jonah boarded a ship to Tarshish in order to foolishly try to flee from the presence of the Lord because he did not want to go to the Gentile Ninevites with a message of repentance towards God. And so Peter here in his, in his resistance is acting like Jonah. But this, this vision, as Derek Thomas says, this level the playing field. That the Jew could never legitimately claim in himself to be special or different from a Gentile. And he says that Peter protested loudly and repeatedly. Now we might balk at Peter's response and also that of Jonah. But too often we are like Peter and Jonah. Too often we view ourselves as being part of the, the holy club because we do certain things and don't do other things. We, we pat ourselves and others like us on the back and look down our noses who are not like us. And this, as I said earlier, is in effect a denial of the gospel. Now we'll see how Peter overcomes this. And we'll see how the Holy Spirit overcomes the division in the, in the hearts of the Gentiles as well. But earlier I quoted Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. Therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Miserable. What a miserable existence that we and all Gentiles were living under. But verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been brought near to God by the blood of Christ, and we've been brought near to each other by the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, God has called us clean. No matter what you've done prior to coming to Christ, God has called you clean no matter what you have done after coming to Christ, God has called you clean. 
He's called every man and woman and child clean who is trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Through the vicarious life of Christ and the atoning death of Christ, God has redeemed his elect from every tribe and language and people and nation. There is no difference that really matters between you and any other Christian because of the work of Christ. Let us not call common what God has made clean. Let's pray together. Almighty God, in your holiness, wisdom, power, and sovereignty, Lord, you have called us clean by calling your Son, our Savior, unclean in our place. As he bore the wrath that we deserved. As he died in our place for our sins, not for his. For he lived a perfectly righteous life. We know that he lived in our place and he died in our place. And so through Christ, we are credited with the very righteousness of Christ. According to the gospel, we are as clean as Christ. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in this great salvation. Help us to view ourselves in the reality of who we are in Christ. Help us to view our brothers and sisters in the reality of who they are in Christ, that you might be glorified in our midst as the church builds itself up in love. May that be true in this local church. And may that be true as we regard our brothers and sisters from every true gospel preaching church. For people all around the world and throughout history, we are one in you, Lord Jesus. Amen.